When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew. Today, I'll be talking with P. Jelly Clark about his first full-length novel, which is set in an alternate steampunk Cairo in 1912. It's called A Master of Gin. A little about the author, Fenderson Jelly Clark is the Hugo Nebula Sturgeon and World Fantasy-nominated author of the novel A Master of Gin, as well as several novellas and many short stories. Born in New York and raised mostly in Houston, Texas, he spent the early formative years of his life in the homeland of his parents, Trinidad and Tobago. When not writing speculative fiction, P. Jelly Clark works as an academic historian whose research spans comparative slavery and emancipation in the Atlantic world. In his spare time, he enjoys debating the philosophies of Wu-Tang Clan. First, we'll have a short reading from Jelly to acquaint new readers with his work. Chapter 2 Fatma leaned forward, puffing on her hookah. The ma'asal was a blend of pungent tobacco, soaked in honey and molasses with hints of herbs, nuts, and fruit. But there was another taste, sweet to the point of sickly that tickled the tongue. Magic. It made the fine hairs along the nape of her neck tingle. The small crowd that had gathered watched her expectantly. A big-nosed man in a white turban leaned so close over her shoulder she could smell the soot that covered him, an ironworker by the stink of it. He shushed a companion, which only made others grumble. From the corner of her eye, she caught Khalid giving both men a withering glare, his broad face drawing tight. Never a good idea to upset the bookie. Like most, they probably wagered on her opponent, who sat across the octagonal table. All of seventeen, she guessed, with a face even more boyish than her own. But he had already bested men twice his age. More important, he was a he, which still held weight 
even in Cairo's flaunted modernity, which explained the smile on his dark lips. Hi, Joey, and thanks for the reading. Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. Well, let's talk about your first full-length novel. It's named The Master of Jinn. So we'll start off talking about the jinn. Yeah. They've lived among Egyptians since the door was opened by Al-Jahis 50 years before. Despite their humongous size, colorful skin that comes in all hues, and large curving horns, they actually work along humans, for example, as architects, librarians, guards, a myriad of other jobs. So are all the jinn integrated into human life? No, that's a great question. Um, and it's interesting you talked about the, the types of jinn. You know, I took a lot of that. So, of course, I had my creative liberty from <laughs> medieval manuscripts from Persia, India, uh, other parts, parts of the Middle East and elsewhere, West Africa, who have all of these descriptions of jinn. And some of them are huge and some of them are small, right? They come in all different types. Sometimes cats are often thought to be jinn in disguise. Mm -hmm. And so they can come as many different things. Um, but the question is, in my world, are they all integrated? Um, I wouldn't say all of them. Uh, the ones who've chosen to be integrated in, in human life are. There are certainly other jinn, as I brought up the Afrit, who basically stay away. <laughs> they stay away from <laughs> other jinn. They stay away from humans, period. There's not much known about them. And uh, there's always new jinn on the horizon that um, may not be known of. So there are some jinn who attach themselves very closely to humans in this world. And there are others who uh, who are integrated in society and they may have jobs. You'll see them on the tram car, sitting there in their suits. <laughs> that was hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are others who uh, are, not, are not interested in humans at all and want nothing to do with them. Some of them just want to sleep <laughs> or do other things. And so yes. <laughs> it's a mix, right? They, they are this mix of different beings, yeah. Well, you mentioned the Ifris, and I think for our listeners, um, they might have had a pause with that. Just mention briefly what the Ifris are. Yeah. So often in uh, there's the Ifrit as I, as I, of course, take liberties to create them. And the Ifrit that comes out of uh, more um, the cosmologies and understandings and various folklores, but. Often all jinn themselves are supposed to be beings of a smokeless fire, right? This is often how they're described. And the Afrit, I suppose, probably come the closest to often being depicted this way. Um, often Afrit in various stories are often the mischievous jinn, the jinn who may cause problems. Um, and so not too different from the way I've described it. In my description of them, I, I could make them beings of complete fire in many, in many ways, right? So, you look upon them and they're these complete fiery jinn who, unlike the others, probably because they're made of fire, mm -hmm. uh, don't integrate well into society, don't integrate as easily, and they, they're kind of aloof from others. And here's a and hint. Just a reminder that jinn, by the way, can also be very elemental in various forms, yeah. Here's a hint for the readers. They can be a problem. <laughs> yeah, a real problem. So there's one common trait of jinn that humans have to watch out for that really stood out for me. Can you talk a bit about that? I suppose maybe it's the one that uh, you have to be, they are very literal at times in their meanings. And exactly. 
And so, you know, I think I, I pulled this from the common, especially in the West, we have notions of gin, genies, and, you know, the three wishes. And I kind of wanted to play with that and subvert it a bit uh, and point out, and, and I'm not the first to do this, by the way, right? There's mm-hmm. often been the trope of the watch what you wish for. And in this case, these gin are very good at this, in part just because they've been doing it for a long time, <laughs> right? And so if, if getting wishes is like a bartering system, then they're excellent barterers, and you have to be very careful uh, what how you phrase something, or it could go very badly for you. I could almost see Jen as in the legal profession, too. Yes. I think I mentioned that many of them actually go into law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would fit. <laughs> because they are very good at that. Well, Jelly, in your other life, you're a historian. Your stories present an alternate Cairo at the turn of the 20th century, where women are allowed to participate in professional activities. Lesbian relationships don't seem to be a big secret. Did such a Cairo, which would have been more progressive than contemporary European countries of that time, ever exist? Well, you know, I I think that what I was doing here was playing around with some anti-colonialism mm-hmm. and trying to imagine a post-colonial society and what that might be like if, you know, these societies had the right to self-determination. Mm-hmm. And there are some things I'm drawing from that are part of Cairo of that period, right? There, There is, or if not just that period, immediately after, even if I'm playing a bit around with dates by a decade or so, there is a feminist movement that arises, a push for suffrage, <laughs> you know, that arises, uh, a little bit later than the time I'm speaking of. Mm-hmm. Of course, there were women involved in the uh, nationalist uprisings, which are taking place even before the period I'm speaking of. And so a lot of this I pulled from the history itself from that era. And it's it's hard to compare. It, it's hard to, you know, compare like uh, with, a, with a Cairo of that time, be more progressive than a European society of that time, because many of these European societies were not, quote unquote, what we would consider progressive either, right? Uh, exactly. Women would not vote. Uh, women were considered, you know, appendages of their husbands. And I think, you know, there was often, a, I think uh, Cairo of that period would have probably been more similar to a European society of that time period, right? They would have found a lot of similarities, although, although there would have been differences. And what I did was I played with some of those differences and I tried to, you know, and part of this is because the jinn have arrived, because there's been this earth-shattering, life-altering thing that's happened. Mm-hmm. And part of my speaking of this, I said, look, magic comes back in the world. There's now supernatural activity. There's now jinn. Why are, or why do I expect the status quo to remain the same? And so I tried to imagine uh, how this shift in, uh, this shift, this, this basically social shift, what, how it would cause, you know, different changes and, you know, pushes for rights and so forth. And so, yeah, I figured if I can have Corpiro Jin walking around, I can have a society where, you know, uh, women uh, have more rights. And mm-hmm. one, and they just won, by the way. <laughs> As I point out in an earlier book, uh, The Haunting of Tramcar 015, it takes place uh, in the backdrop of a, of a suffragette movement. So they just recently won the right to vote. So, yeah. Hooray for them. Well, uh, it's... Egypt is, in your book, definitely positioned as a power of its own because of the access to jinn and all the things that the jinn have shared with humans, it seems like. 
Yeah, so, definitely so. So, you know, I you know, I tried to just imagine, you know, what, what other changes might come about. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was interesting to play around with those. And like I said, even women in suits, uh, I can find <laughs> pictures from that period uh, in uh, Beirut and parts of Egypt and elsewhere of women dressed in suits at times. So, you know, even there I had interesting bits of our history to pull from. Yeah, that's good to know uh, that there was some historical antecedent. Mm-hmm. So you have three heroines in your book, but you're a male. So what led your decision to spotlight three women and really have no guy in a foreground? And was it difficult for you to write three female characters? Um, you know, I often wonder what the choice is. I know that when I when I started this story, it goes back to a digit in Cairo that was published in 2016. Mm-hmm. When I first thought of the story, even in, earlier than that, when I was writing it, uh, the main character, Fatma, just leapt out to me. And I knew that immediately, oh, this is who she's going to be. She's going to wear those suits, and she's going to be the main figure. And then after that, it just became peopling people around her, right? Mm-hmm. I think uh, CT became the next character that I thought of, and I loved their interaction. And so there's a way that the characters almost organically arose. Um, where did I pull them from? I don't know. I always, you know, the writer always <laughs> asks, like, is it from uh, women that I know in my life, uh, from readings and what have you? I, I definitely make uh, Fatma's uh, surname is uh, a nod to a famous Egyptian feminist. So I, I don't know why I ended up pulling her as a main character, but um, the rest just seemed to fit. Uh, you know, I guess I could have thrown a guy in there, but they seem to work. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, it's what worked for the story, and that was best. Um, as far as was it difficult for me to write? Um, I wouldn't say it's difficult, but certainly I think when you're writing like that, you have to step out of yourself. You have to think, okay, how would this character in their fullness, how are they going to react to certain situations? How does existing in their body and their identity uh, shape how they think, how they approach certain situations that might be different from your own. Mm-hmm. And I think with that, luckily, I've had uh, a lot of um, women writers to to look to, right, that I've read over the years uh, who've written some great women characters. I've had um, I have women in my life who I could say, hey, does this work? <laughs> and so that's always a good thing. And so I, I don't know if it was it was difficult, but certainly, you know, you have to put into work. So you said your heroine Fatma is named after a famous Egyptian woman. How, how do you say your last name? Because I'm about to say it, and uh, I don't want to mess it up. Yes, El Sharawi, yes. El Sharawi. She is named after And she is, I did that nod to her last name when I first did the, when I did the first story, yeah. So Agent Fatma El Sharawi works for the Ministry of Alchemy, Enchantments, and Supernatural Entities. That's a great name. She's a detective, and she solves cases which have a supernatural element. Fatma finds out that a masked man claiming to be Al-Jahiz has likely murdered the members of a secret cult. They were mostly British. And, and he's busy stirring up Cairo with inflammatory speeches. Since Fatma... Mm-hmm. Since Fatma doesn't know the identity of the man, she refers to him as the imposter. Now, how can she be so sure the masked man who clearly has magical powers is not Al-Jahiz? Oh, 
great question. Uh, can she? Um, you know, one of the things, there's two things here, right? And when I created this world, it's always, when you've created an alternate world, well, how did this come to be? Why are there shit? Mm-hmm. And of course, Al-Jahiz is, becomes this figure, uh, who is, you know, this mysterious figure, the Sudanese mystic who calls this to happen through a mix of alchemy and machines some 50 years earlier. And she's born into this world that he's transformed. But then he, he does this and he disappears, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I call him and I'm gone. <laughs> who knows where he is? <laughs> and so his return, you know, the idea that he would return is like buzzword worthy in itself that there's somebody who may be him is amazing. Uh, and, you know, with Fatima, one thing about her is being the detective, right? Being this person who has this clinical, cynical mind. She's not a person who's going to believe something right away. Uh, so she's always going to hold out like, no, I think this person's an imposter. You have to prove it to me. But as readers will see, uh, Al-Jahid certainly shows that he is a prominent figure with a lot of powers, right? Yeah. <laughs> the actual Al-Jahid is rumored to have had. And so... She has to deal with this, um, where in her mind, this has to be an imposter, but, but is it? Because this person is doing amazing things, uh, much as the first season. If you see it, it's going to cause its own problems, uh, in Cairo itself as people try to deal with this, this person who has returned, which is probably bigger even than the jinn arriving, right? That, that yeah. Cause this to happen is here. Yeah. This person. So I, I give it, I give it to Fatma. This is her doggedness. This is her. Her insistence, you know, that, uh, that, that, that she has to look at this with a clear eye. And it's part of what makes her unique for this job, right? Not everyone can work for the, you know, the Ministry of Alchemy, Enchantments, and Supernatural Entities. Even though people are dealing with this, not everyone wants to deal with every part of it, right? They just want to go to work and get, get their regular life, uh, as they, as they see fit, but, you know, Fatma has to deal with all of this every day, and uh, there are not many people who can do that. Yeah, I, I would say she really gets in his face almost. I mean, she seeks him out. and yeah. uh, That doesn't one... always uh, turn out well, however. <laughs> no. <laughs> so she's used to working alone, uh, but then she gets assigned a partner, Haida, the other yeah. woman, yeah. the third heroine. And Fatma wears a variety of snappy Western suits. We talked about that. She has pinstripe shirts. She has chartreuse ties, maybe. And Haida dresses differently. She dresses more conservatively, I get the impression. But she does have hijabs in different colors. So how do those clothing choices reflect our personalities? Uh, I think you kind of said it in a way, right, that uh, Fatma is this person who is, in some ways, she is bucking convention and mm-hmm. wearing these uh, these Western suits, though in a Dejan and Kyra, I give her reason. I, I never fully give the reason, but one of the reasons she likes to tell people anyway uh, why she wears the suits is that she points out that there were um, British and French uh, uh surveyors would come to Egypt before this and they would often put on uh, put on local garb and say they'd look exotic. And so when she first went to the English tailor and said, I want a suit, he asked why. She said, oh, I want it to look exotic. Right? <laughs> she wants to. So she's like turning the, the, the gaze there on its head. And so, but I never really give the full reason for why she uh, chooses to wear the suits, but certainly she's making her own statement. Now, 
you know, you're right. Her partner is making her own statement, however. In fact, there are some ways that her partner is maybe more political than her, mm-hmm. more progressive in certain ways. Uh, and one of the reasons I, I chose the multicolored hijab is that during the period, during this period, uh, the typical hijab would have been black, right? This would have been the more common color right. uh, that most people would have worn. But part of my tinkering here with history um, is wanting to show her, this is how she shows her modernity is that one of the things that's happened is that, you know, more modern women, women who are more urban or or claim to be more modern may wear a multicolored hijab, and so I wanted to have her in that. And, you know, one of the reasons I I did this as well was when I created Fatman, I put her in the suit, you you never know how people are going to interpret things. And I was a bit, I don't know, I felt some kind of way of some people interpreting it as if I was making a statement against wearing hijab or something of the sort, right? And I was like, no, I'm not doing that at all. <laughs> so it was good to have a character who was like, no, I, I, I dress traditionally, and that's also fine, right? That both, the, both what Fatma's doing and what her partner's doing are both fine. There's, there's not a, one is not instantly better or more modern than the other. I kind of so felt... I to make sure that was said, yeah. I kind of felt that um, Fatma maybe dresses that way too because she's a really cool lesbian and you know she doesn't yeah, really identify <laughs> completely with a female role. And in fact, she has right. a little bit of trouble accepting Haida at first and Haida yeah. reproaches her, you know, like we're both women, aren't you going to stick up for me? And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes, and that part part of that is Fatma also has this notion of always working alone. Right? Mm-hmm. So she's she's used to going these things alone, being the only woman, uh, being the only one there. You know, it's part of what also makes her wear the suit. She's like, if I'm going to stand out, I'll I'll stand out fully. So, right. <laughs> you know, now to have someone who is going to be a partner and someone who, in her mind, she's bringing her own, uh, I guess, biases and thinking what this person is like and she's like no i'm 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 not like i'm I'm not whatever stereotype you think i am mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So i can i can handle myself as she shows she's quite capable well fatma uh we just said she's gay she has a girlfriend and fatna is muslim but her girlfriend siti is an idolater can you explain what an idolater is in the context of your alternate caro yeah, and so one of the things I, it's interesting, when I wanted to write the story and I wanted to set it in Cairo, in Egypt, um, of course, there are a lot of stories set in Egypt, and there's this way that often when Egypt enters fantasy, uh, like, we never get past the pyramids, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's a ton of uh, fantasy set in Egypt, uh, especially written by uh, many of us in the West, but then it, you know, it, it never gets past, uh, I don't know. 200 AD, yeah. ancient Egyptian. Yeah. And so I wanted to show, like, no, here's a here's a modern Egypt, and a lot of stuff I may hearken to actually takes place, may refer back to things that have happened since then, the medieval era, and all these other things, right? And here are the rest of it to talk about. At the same time, how can you ignore the pyramids? How mm-hmm. can you ignore the temples and the Egypt is simply ancient? That's just how it is, right? The modern part is an ancient history, and so. CT and her groups, the quote unquote idolaters, was my way to get back at that. And so basically what I've done here is that with the arrival of the jinn, as you can imagine, it's disrupted people's understandings of the world, right? And the uh, arrival of supernatural entities and all this, it's, it's made people question things. Uh, and so 
just as you've had people who may become more devout in their faith, whether they are Muslim or Christian or Judaic or what have you, and you have some who uh, you have some people who may not have any more faith, right? They've they've lost their faith or what have you. Then you have others who have changed. You have spiritualists and others. You have others who have changed and said like maybe the faith we want these idolaters is the faith of the ancient Egyptians, right? And so you have a movement of of mostly Egyptians who have gone back to worshiping the old gods, mm-hmm. uh, and Sisi is one of them, and they do so in secret because. You know, what they're doing is considered so out of bounds that, you know, they, they feel they would be persecuted by everyone, uh, Muslims, Christians, whoever you. And so they pretty much do this in secret. And the nickname that people have given them is idolaters, as they, as people who worship idols as the old gods. But, uh, as we see that their, their numbers are actually growing, uh, even though they're underground. And the old gods do seem to still have some powers in this alternate universe as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're like, and I think they they believe that the gods are all beneath Egypt's depths and just waiting to be called back. Mm-hmm. Something that something an image that uh, makes Fatma shudder, <laughs> but, <laughs> but of course one that Siti would uh, welcome, right? And so you know, part of this was to show that there are these complications, right? And I think. It was, and I, I tried to do this as well in uh, The Haunting of Tremcar 015. I think there's this way of thinking of, people think of Cairo's group, think of Egypt, and they think of it, well, it's just a Muslim society, you know, and it's like, well, actually, no, there are, <laughs> there are Coptic Christians who live there. Mm-hmm. There are different uh, Muslim sects. There are different Muslim, un- different understandings between different people who are Muslim. There's like, it's not one monolithic ideology. Uh, you know, there are, there, there are Jews who live there. And so, you know, I just wanted to point out there, there are some Zoroastrians who, you know, are living in Egypt. So I just wanted to point out that, you know, there are a lot of these different, uh, cultures and religions and cosmologies that are coexisting. So we have ancient gods, including crocodile gods, and we have gin. We <laughs> talked about them. Chain smoking, chain smoking <laughs> crocodile gods. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then towards the end of your book, uh, we're introduced, uh, those of us who are new readers are introduced to a different kind of supernatural entity. They're called angels, but these angels yeah. are different from the kind of angels thought of in the West. How would you describe them, and what function do they play in your novel? Yeah, so, you know, the angels, like you said, uh, for those who haven't read, the angels first make their appearance in the first story, uh, Adejan and Cairo. And the angels are basically these beings who, first of all, they they have bodies like angels, but they're mechanical clockwork bodies, so they're giants. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> they have four arms and giant wings. But their bodies themselves are said to be very ethereal and almost light uh, that you can barely see within this encasing, right? And all we know about them is that they appeared sometime after uh, the Shin. Um, and people started calling them angels, and they just basically said, okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> they don't deny it. Or, yeah, they don't, they don't deny or affirm. Right, but they they basically walk around as these almost enigmatic beings who people puzzle over. You know, if you look them in the eye, you start like getting starry eyed. You know, and you know, and they are basically these beings who are more powerful than the jinn, but not much is understood about them or what their motives are. 
mm-hmm. or, you know, what they want and why they're here. And much as in envisioning in Cairo, uh, they it find out that they might have subversive <laughs> intentions, <laughs> right? And there's and again, it's it's complicated because you know, according like I have in there, um, according to uh, Muslim theologians in Egypt, uh, these cannot be angels because a, uh, true angels do not have free will, and so they can't simply be here. Uh, according to the Coptic Christians in Egypt, they're like, yes, they don't believe these are angels either because angels are supposed to be uh, adhering to the will of God. And so everyone has basically said they're not angels, but the average, to the average person, they're like, yeah, they look like angels <laughs> and we're not certain what they are. The um, amount of power so, they know, have. The, yeah, the, the, they're my mystery being mm-hmm. uh, that I, that maybe I haven't fully. <laughs> I haven't fully figured out yet, you know, but they they are always in, I, I like the idea of these entities who are somewhat beyond our understanding. And in any way, isn't that how I would, how angels themselves are depicted, right? Like they're not human, they're not God, but they're something else. Yeah. Right, who are beyond our, our understanding. And so whatever these beings are, um, that's how they exist here. I've, uh, I think in the last 10 or 15 years, angels have been cropping up in books and usually they're not, if, if they're not downright exploitative, usually they're not particularly helpful either. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I've, and I've just always, I've always been fascinated by that. Like, right. The, The angel gone rogue or the angel who has its own almost cold, logical understanding. Mm hmm. You know, where it's like, yeah, certainly this will work and this will be better for human beings, but it's going to wipe out most of us. Yes, but you'll be better afterwards. You know, <laughs> that's the plan. Like that idea of the angels. Like, yeah, that's just the plan. That's the way it is. Uh-huh. And where they, you know, see us as almost just like, you know, uh, little pieces on a chessboard or what have you. Right. That there's always a grander plan that they have in mind. Well, what are you working on now, Jelly? I am... I just finished it, so I'm working on nothing right now. Yay. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I just finished uh, a, a novella that I just sent off. We'll see what happens to it uh, about um, an undead assassin. Oh, okay. <laughs> so no more, no more alternate world. Uh, I'm going full secondary fantasy world, which was always my first love. So mm-hmm. this is a full-on secondary fantasy world about an undead assassin placed on an impossible job. <laughs> Which are the best kind. Well, uh, how do people follow you? Are you on Twitter, website, updated? What's the yeah. best way to keep up with you? Uh, people can find things about me if I update that site at my <laughs> website, uh, com. so just like my name.com. And I'm on Twitter at, at pjellyclark. So I make it simple. Okay. So well. Thanks so much for making time for the show today. Thank you. These were great questions, great conversations. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network and Fantasy. I've been talking to P. Jelly Clark about a steampunk detective novel, A Master of Gin. In August, I'll interview Matt Bell about Appleseed, a literary epic novel that draws from fairy tales as well as technology. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew. 
You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more at Gabrielle Author, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E, Author. Hope to catch you next time.